1: It is Monday, June 22nd, and today's main conversation is actually a rerun of a panel that I hosted at Masari's Mainnet earlier this month. It was called Macro Investors Sound Off and features Ari Paul, Spencer Bogart, and David Neige, and gets into a lot of the big picture topics that relate to Bitcoin in the macro markets during these strange times. Before that though, let's dive into the brief. First up on the brief was the fear of Libra fake news. What happened? The Fed released a new research report this morning called Global Demand for Basket-Backed Stablecoins. It was written by Garth Bauman and Gene Fleming, and basically what happened is they ran simulations assuming that there was something like a Libra-like stablecoin or Mark Carney's synthetic hegemonic currency, basically a stablecoin that instead of being pegged to a single asset or a single fiat, was backed by a basket of assets and a basket of other currencies. This has been proposed as a potential solution to some of the issues that we're seeing with a single national currency being the world's reserve currency, and actually harkens back to John Maynard Keynes' proposal for what he called a bank or at Bretton Woods, which again would remove the world reserve currency from pegging to any single national currency. So they took this idea, assumed it was real, and then ran a number of simulations and here's what they found, and I'm actually just going to quote the report directly because it sums it up really well. First, because of general equilibrium effects of the basket currency on the volatility of currency values, overall demand for that currency is small. Second, despite scant holdings of the basket, its global reach may contribute to substantial increases in welfare if the basket is widely accepted, allowing it to complement holdings of sovereign currencies. Third, we calculate the welfare-maximizing composition of the basket, finding that optimal weights depend upon the pattern of international acceptance, but that basket composition does not significantly affect welfare. Fourth, despite potential welfare improvements, low demand for the basket currency from buyers limits sellers' incentives to invest in accepting it, suggesting that fears of a so-called global stablecoin replacing domestic sovereign currencies may be overstated. Why does this matter and why is it worth bringing up? Well, the first is, I think there's a reasonable question about whether policymakers strangled the baby in its bed when it came to Facebook's Libra. There was a huge immediate reaction to the whole concept. And I think that, unfortunately, two different things got lumped together. The first was the idea of a basket-based stablecoin in general. The second was Facebook as the originator of that idea, as the group or the company trying to bring that to market. Fear of Facebook is obviously tremendous, and especially in places like the US, Facebook has a lot of unresolved issues vis-a-vis Congress, so it was never really going to get out of the gate easily. But it is clear that this basket approach was one of the major sticking points, especially in the US, and we can tell that because they have subsequently changed their model to no longer have the basket of currencies approach. Still, the other part of why this matters and why it's worth talking about is that it is very clear that the Overton window on this idea is continuing to shift. We are having major important conversations in the key institutions of economic power about what the future of the reserve currency system around the world looks like. And that's a really interesting thing to note developments within. Speaking of that, that actually brings us to our second point on the brief, which is that the Italian Banking Association announced last week that its banks are willing to pilot a digital euro. The association is 700 plus Italian banking institutions, and effectively they expressed desire to speed up implementation of a digital euro that would be backed by the European Central Bank. And in addition to just saying that they would support this, they shared 10 considerations for what a digital euro might look like. So why is this interesting? Well, I think that this reflects an ongoing question of who within the European Union supports this type of digital euro experimentation and who doesn't. Earlier this year, we saw France send out a call for proposals for CBDC experiments. The Dutch Central Bank has announced that Netherlands is willing to trial something like a digital euro, similar to this announcement. On the other hand, Germany last year, the head of the German Central Bank warned That a CBDC could be destabilizing. So you're seeing these kind of interesting political fault lines, as with everything within the European Union and the Euro system in general. And so it's not clear exactly what's going to win out, but the fact that there continues to be this conversation, this call for experiments, and some of these nations are now more aggressively pushing to see a digital Euro, I think makes it more of a relevant topic for that economic zone. And last up on the brief, let's bring this economic consideration back home to the U.S., And talk about some conflicting signals in the US housing market. We got a report today that May home sales of previously owned homes dropped 9.7% in May. That's the lowest since 2010, and is more than 26.6% down year over year, which is actually the biggest slide year over year since February 2008. And the reason this matters is a couple things. First, obviously, this type of data is one of the most important economic signals that we have. Who's trying to buy and what are they trying to buy and what is it doing to prices and what does supply and demand look like? These are really important telling factors given how much a percentage of GDP and consumer expenditure things relating to housing are. Second, we are getting really mixed signals because at the same time as you're seeing these really, really poor numbers in terms of sales, you're also seeing mortgage applications surging, which would suggest you would think some confidence going forward. But then on the flip side, you also see Current mortgages and forbearance, which had seen better than expected rates of continued repayment, actually start to see those repayments dip. So, really, the housing market is very conflicted, and in terms of the signals that it's telling us. And that actually is a preview of the show for Wednesday. On Wednesday, I'm going to go deep on who I think has it right on the economy. Is it the Bulls or is it the Bears? And you won't want to miss that one. So if you haven't yet, now is a great time to subscribe. With that, let's flip over to the main topic, macro investors sound off from the Masari Mainnet Conference. That conversation with Ari Paul from BlockTower Capital, Spencer Boggart from Blockchain Capital, and David Nage from ARCA is coming up right after a word from our sponsors.
2: Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange.
1: Welcome, guys. Uh, Apparently, we've been here live for a minute. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Nathaniel, NLW. I host The Breakdown, uh, which is a daily podcast on macro, on Bitcoin, on uh, the shifts of power in the world and what they mean. And so my interpretation of this session title, uh, kind of macro investors sound off or something like that, is that... um, I, what I want to do with it, I guess, is basically let's have this kind of conversation about how the macro environment, how everything happening in the world is finding its way into markets, be they crypto markets or traditional markets. And so I guess maybe as a, as a way to kick that off. Uh, what have been your feelings? And maybe let's start with uh, Ari, and then we can go to to anyone else on watching uh, first how the market has uh, shrugged off COVID nineteen, and then second how it has responded or not responded to these uh, th- these protests, this this new kind of huge batch of uh, of civil unrest.
0: Yeah. So the markets are very explicitly. Um, Reacting to Fed stimulus, which they're, which they're kind of assuming is infinite. So talking to like some of the biggest buy-side investors, um, it, it, the disconnect that we all see, you know, rising unemployment and yet a market marching higher, um, it's not complicated. It's uh, you know, you have a Federal Reserve that is that has a massive amount of money to buy corporate bond ETFs that basically says they'll buy equity if they need to. Um, that infinite, you know, and we have a, we have a generation of investors who've been taught not to fight the Fed. For basically 20 years, um, you've been trained. You really the way to invest is just to figure out where the Fed's going to push money. Um, eventually, that breaks, but these things can take a really long time to break. Um, personally, I'm skeptical that it's going to last much much longer. But wouldn't shock me if we made new equity highs over the next six months uh, before a collapse. Um, and, and the thing that breaks it, uh, whenever you have kind of a, fed, a central bank driving asset prices higher, is that can continue as long as faith in the central bank continues which can be a really long time. Um, I, basically making a bet that that will end is a bet that kind of the central banking, uh, banking backbone will itself crumble, which is, is ge- a generational event or, or far far more rare than a ge- once a generation. So I do think we're headed for that personally. Um, but but that's why, you know, a lot of investors, they would say that's almost never a good bet to make. You're almost always betting better just betting the Fed can keep pushing things up if they have the political will to do so. So that doesn't surprise me. And then on protests, you um, Historically, I frankly, I'm, um, I've been trying to catch up with my economic history and looking at market reactions to protests at different countries, different time periods. You can almost never locate riots on a chart. Um, if you're looking at equity in almost any country, you can almost never find the, 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 the riots. Um, and I, I, I don't have like a, a, a really simple answer for why that is, except that... Um, they don't tend to have immediate massive impact on corporate earnings. At the end of the day, uh, markets do not reflect the economy. They reflect a handful of stocks, a basket of stocks. With the S&P 500 marching higher, it's basically five stocks going up and everything else going down. So, yeah, the U.S. economy is, is uh, I was going to use profanity, is uh, doing very badly. Um, but the earnings of a small number of giant companies have been doing reasonably well, companies like Amazon and Microsoft. And so when investors look at the recent uh, protests and riots You know is that going to impact amazon's bottom line or microsoft's maybe right but then we need to think about how much worse these things can get
3: i i like to look at data and i obviously we all like to look at data and so let's just let's go from the top so cnbc this afternoon after the close at four o'clock posted stocks jump as wall street focused on the economy reopening s p 500 now up 40 percent from march lows what has happened in that time frame so we've had 1.8 million confirmed cases in the United States, 414,000 have recovered, over 107,000 deaths. We've had a global pandemic, we have been sheltered in place, that is why we're all on video and not together in person right now. What else has happened? We have had over 40 million jobless claims in the last 10 weeks and another 2.5, uh, 2.1 million filed for benefits last week alone. So we've had this, this structural issue happen where all of a sudden, this global pandemic has caused 40 million unemployed. We are now seeing things breaking down among society. And then on top of that, we've added a, a, a massive social unrest issue. And so I think my colleague actually wrote it really well, Jeff Gorman. the system is broken. You know, we've had the scariest pandemic in the last hundred years is below a, what he calls a fourth quarter lead. If you were using a, a football analogy, it's blown a fourth quarter lead, leading to racism and social injustice which is then playing the second game of a doubleheader following a match between record unemployment and decades of wealth inequality. There's no fix to any of this right now. And so, you know, for all of us that are, you know, obviously focused on digital assets, this is a, a cornerstone time for us because the system is breaking. We don't want things to break, but the system is breaking because it is structurally unsound. And so when it is structurally unsound, you better have a place to go, you know, to to move from that and digital assets, Bitcoin and other digital assets, in my opinion and the opinion of others, is an untethered asset. And so that is why it is an important moment in time because the system is is structurally unsound and it is breaking. And the trust system that we have is breaking and is broken.
1: Spencer, what do you think,
3: guys? I'm not sure if
4: this is where <laughs> I parked my car. Excuse
1: me, I mean, this I, is I, a, I'm a not I'm a macro tourist
3: here. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, but but in all seriousness, um, you know I'm I'm deeply interested in, in, in macro topics here. Um, you know I want to note that I'm in no way an expert. I am absolutely a tourist. Um, I, I do uh, crypto venture capital, um, and, and you know certainly watch in the way that some of these things are tying back in. Um, careful about extrapolating too far here. Um, you know certainly I, I I think the biggest event here that's got shouldn't say the biggest event because there are several larger events happening, including the current demonstrations as well as the pandemic. But the most relatable to our industry um, would just be the the monetary response, right? So it's, we don't even have to theorize about um, the amount of fiscal or monetary stimulus that we've seen so far in terms of will it be good, will it be bad, um, what, are, what are the implications going to be. There, there are a lot of reasonable hypotheses on a number of different frameworks there. Um, I think that what's undeniable is that we are in uncharted territory, and that involves some element of increased risk. And I think that there is an increased desire and appetite to hedge some of that risk. And I think that Bitcoin and crypto assets broadly are one of the vehicles that people can use to help hedge some of that so risk. It's
1: interesting. So I want to come back to the the, the Bitcoin point uh, that I think you're about you're kind of making, Spencer. But first, just going back to something that David said: this idea of the system being broken uh, is is an interesting one because something I've seen, uh, an interesting uh, analysis that I've seen from people like Ben Hunt are that actually the system is doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's just that if you haven't been kind of uh, exposed to and sticking your head directly in the mouth of what that looks like, right? The fact that these markets are relatively disconnected from the real economy, that they do care mostly about what Fed policy is going to uh, do in terms of the cost of money then it becomes jarring to see economic pain at the same time as, you know, something that is effectively an asset price increase machine and or a political scorecard or utility uh, just kind of laid so bare in front of you. And if that's the context, I think that part of what that contributes to is a a narrative rupture that creates openness for something else. And so I guess my next question to you guys is, uh, to put it bluntly, has there ever been a more significant significant narrative moment for bitcoin specifically i mean digital assets more broadly but uh, i certainly probably by the way that i'm asking the question you can guess my answer but I'll, I'll let whoever wants to jump in first on that one or maybe let's actually go back to spencer because i think this is kind of the point that you were starting to make
0: All yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah yeah sure I'll, I'll jump in um yeah I, I agree with the leading question that uh you, you know i think um in the last financial crisis of 2008 I was a very young trader and investor, and thought, "Man, that's it. This is this is the end of uh, the modern, you know, fiat-based monetary system. We've laid bare the lie that um, Wall Street and and the Treasury Department and the and the central bank kind of serve the country, and it's very clearly a Wall Street bailout." uh the these these long regimes tend to last a lot longer than you think and what ends up happening is people give up on betting against it so you had a generation of investors and traders that basically tried to short the dollar after 2008 that tried to bet that interest rates were to rise that we'd get inflation you had people looking at massive money printing in 2009 10 11 12 and basically those people got washed out um you know people running hedge funds making those bets went out of business and um when when the end finally comes it, it usually looks weirdly inevitable in retrospect. So like think about the 2008 crisis again. We knew real estate was in a bubble, we knew it was going to crash. Everyone in that market knew it was a bubble that was going to crash and yet it still crashes out of the blue and violently and they, those people still lose their money. Well, how do they lose their money? Cuz I forget which uh, I think it was the Citibank uh, CEO at the time said something like when the music's playing you have to dance. There's this real that's a real reality in markets and investing and in that you can't be a decade early, you can't even be three years early on these calls. And um, so what ends up happening is, uh, we all see the end coming, and the warning signs become louder and louder and louder. And then it still is a really sharp uh, crisis, because people have been so thoroughly trained to buy every dip, they've been so thoroughly trained to just ignore the warning signs, because the warning signs have been there for a long time. So yeah, I think what's happening now is, um, you know, unprecedented gets you the word unprecedented gets used a lot. But 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was unfathomable to have a president tweeting against central bank autonomy. It was unfathomable to have a head of the Federal Reserve saying we have an infinite money supply and can print with, at will with no problem. It was unfathomable to have Congress talk about uh, proposing legislation to print trillion dollar platinum coins. Um, those are all truly mind boggling, crazy things, and we just become jaded to them because each, you know, if, if, hey, if Congress talking about the platinum coin didn't cause the dollar to collapse, what will? But I, I personally am betting and think that, that the end of that system is coming, that the lie's been laid bare, um, but it's still not an overnight change. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. Um, you think about the real estate crisis. Um, it didn't, the mm-hmm. stock market crashed kind of all of a sudden in latest 2008, but real estate had been crashing for a full year. CDOs had been crashing for a year. When I was a, a trader at Suspense International Group, um, I was a, a young trader and one of the partners of the firm in mid-2017 ran across, he was like jogging across the trading floor. And someone said, I won't name him, but someone said, what's wrong? And he said, the markets are crashing in slow motion. And Susquehanna was uh, a giant market-making firm that had their hands in kind of every liquid market. And um, the U.S. equities continued to make a new high into mid-2018. And yet, things were collapsing like even as that was happening and and not just in the abstract markets were collapsing just not markets that day traders look at it was things like the muni bond market was frozen and if you if you even looked at bloomberg you didn't see it because What happened was uh, the trading just stopped. Liquidity vanished. The bid-ask spreads became crazy. The prices didn't fall because no one wanted to sell their muni bonds at a 10% discount. They all thought, they were all hoping. You know, no one wanted to be the one to actually have to mark to a new market. So prices kind of just sat there for a year, totally illiquid. Everyone, all the insiders knew they were broke. Like they knew, like, um, I won't mention a firm, but people who had billions of dollars in muni bonds knew that they had lost 20% of their value but they were still marking them at the old prices because nothing was trading. So I think we're in a very similar dynamic, um, but with the monetary system as a whole. Um, So with that to say, that's incredibly bullish for Bitcoin on a medium-term horizon, medium-term meaning a few years, um, possibly quite much sooner. But uh, I say all that in that, like I get asked a lot, you know, Ari, Bitcoin isn't up a lot. Uh, I mean, obviously, it is now since Black Thursday. But around Black Thursday, I would get asked by traditional media, Ari, isn't this the scenario Bitcoin was built for? Are, are you worried that Bitcoin's not up? And I would give this kind of an explanation as to why I wasn't worried. I know that this takes longer to play out than you think. And and what, what seems like it should happen in a month might take three years. Well,
3: I, well, also, I, I get asked a lot about so, that
0: too, by the way. I just, yeah, go
3: for it. I, just, I get then about for- that specific point too about Black Thursday. And you know, a lot of people were like, "Well, uh, to Ari's point, why why didn't Bitcoin perform? You know, relative to what you all have been saying, it is untethered. It is you know, a, you know, it, it is something that's uncorrelated, if you will. And as we know, obviously, when you know the VIX went up as high as it went to in the '80s, uh, effectively, you know, uh, correlation all goes to one. So everything effectively tumbled at the same time. And so what happened in that specific case? And I think a lot of people still don't understand this from the outside. Remember. We are all in this world where we understand digital assets, where we understand, you know, blockchain, where we understand these projects. There is a massive world out there that still does not understand this. And that was obviously represented by what happened with Goldman Sachs a few days ago because they still don't get it. Um, and so, you know, there is this massive play out there and, uh, and effectively, you know, it, it, it's just it, it, we're in a place right now where the information asymmetries are, are still very vast. And so it, it, is, it is still you know, mind blowing to me that people are asking me about why Bitcoin went to the way it was. It's because you saw every single person, every hedge fund manager, all the managers out there that were getting margin called, effectively having to sell any liquid assets they could to cover their margin. Um, and so that was the reason why. It wasn't because Bitcoin all of a sudden cracked. And it wasn't because all of a sudden every, per- every person out there in the world believed that Bitcoin was false. It was because you know, holders of it needed to cover margin. And so it's actually really interesting as I, as I posted CNBC, you know, talked about the S&P rebound of 40%. If you look at the, you know, Black Thursday, you know, kind of recovery to now, Bitcoin has recovered 160%. And so, you know, again, that is something that a lot of people aren't talking about because, again, there's this information asymmetry problem
1: yeah I think uh one of the things that is uh interesting is the disconnect between what time scale people are talking about when they're talking about relative asset performance right and you know Ari what you were effectively just saying is that we're at the end of some type of super cycle or or you posit that we're at the end of a, of a super cycle uh and when the 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 music stops you know to, as it inevitably will uh you're not talking about kind of just a small shift. You're talking about a total reorganization of the way that we've designed markets. And that's why there's kind of, I think actually part of why, again, the question was leading from me and why I have such conviction of uh, the, this moment and the narrative relevance of this moment has to do with um the the degree to which I'm watching people this this the 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 huge number of forces in society making it so laid bare, it's creating this vacuum into which people are trying to the to trying to figure things out right. And Bitcoin is one of the few things that actually exists as a credible alternative right. Uh, and, and I think is particularly appealing to a, a different type of demographic. You're seeing this all over the place with who you're seeing get involved, and it's you know you obviously have the the Paul Tudor Joneses of the financial world. Uh, But you're seeing, you know, Coindesk had its uh, consensus event the other day. And you have, you know, Michelle Fan, who's basically invented, you know, YouTube influencers and then built huge companies in the beauty space, talking about how the decentralization of, beauty and fashion that came from YouTube is now, uh, the, the moment for, for the decentralization of, of finance and money is coming. And that's why she's so interested in Bitcoin and is invested in Lolly and these sort of things. And this isn't some fly by night, random, like kind of pop culture thing. It's, there's a much more significant thing happening. So I, I just think it's, it's, a the, the, the intensity of this moment, I think is creating more, more opportunity for, uh, for kind of people to become open to something different than, than what we've seen in the past. Have you guys, I guess maybe let's turn that into a question. Have you experienced that with uh, professional contacts, with personal contacts, with the people who, you know, have you gotten those text messages or have you gotten, uh, you know, return emails from uh, potential LPs that had, you know, kind of left you at the door years ago or whatever, you know, obviously without having to get into any specifics, but, uh, or, or, or is your or, or is it still kind of too in the middle of everything to see that sort of uh, the, the, those changes?
4: Yeah, I'll go ahead and jump in here. It's been surprising some of the responses that I have seen from people that I didn't expect, honestly. Um, people that aren't necessarily, you know, certainly we, we see a skew in terms of demographics towards um, slightly younger demographics. Um, I've seen a lot on the older end of the spectrum kind of reach out in the midst of this. Um, they're not gold bugs. They're not crypto people um, per se. I think everyone's a crypto person in reality, but, but they haven't gotten there yet. Um, and And, if you know basically just said, how how are we gonna pay for these things? like where where is this money coming from? Um, and surprisingly, a lot of them have seen money printer go burr. um and and it, it's odd how much the bumper sticker works here. Um, and so I, I've been surprised the number of people that have said, "Hey, can you help me set up like an account on the exchange?" Um And particularly interesting, we've seen a couple saying, "Hey, I'm looking to buy some for my kids." I'm just looking to set it aside. This is not going to be a huge portfolio allocation. I think this is important that I buy some and just set it aside for them. And that, that kind of caught me by surprise because I, you know, we're, we're in this industry all the time. We're talking about it. Certainly I feel that way, but it surprised me when I see people from far outside, not not even right on the fringe, kind of come in with those kind of comments. I, I will
3: say, as many people know, I came from the family office world. And so I, I keep very deep connectivity there. And so and I've said this publicly on Twitter, the Paul Tudor Jones letter reverberated more than anything in the last three or four years in my existence in this in this space. They read that letter. Many of them read that letter. They saw him on CNBC. It was a very, very well thought out, disciplined approach to exposure into this asset class, especially Bitcoin. Lorenzo Giojani, who was formerly the deputy director of the IMF, obviously co-authored that at Tudor Investment Corp. It was incredibly well thought out and disciplined in its approach. And so that in itself in terms of hearing from people um hearing from potential lps hearing from investors out there that really kind of resonated more than bitcoin appreciation and price or anything else that's happening right now unfortunately the way that most institutional asset managers family offices and others out there they look at the cap table and i talk about that in terms of you know a typical direct investment in venture they look at the cap table and they say who else is on the cap table because they want to know who else is there. They want to know who they know, who they can share ideas with, who they can share diligence with. And so it's the same type of approach that now that Paul Tudor jones is on the cap table, per se, that Rentech, Renaissance, Renaissance Technologies is on the cap table. Those things are massively important for the overall interest and adoption of Bitcoin and the asset class more than any anything in terms of the price right now.
1: How much do you think? Let's let's push on that just a little bit, though. How much do you think that part of that uh, is coinciding with the resilience narrative from the price rebounding so much? I mean, is it is it is it? Is it are you able to actually separate those two out? And this could be for anyone, not just. I mean, David, you're welcome to follow up too. But
3: yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's the price. You know, as 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 Paul Tudor Jones letter, you know, kind of examined the surrounding infrastructure and what is supporting Bitcoin and other digital assets has matured. You know, with the entry of Fidelity as a qualified custodian, uh, of the entry of Coinbase, obviously, with their custody programs, the institutionalization of this asset class has been rapidly approaching for the last two years. And so no longer can institutional investors say, OK, I get it. I just don't have the bandwidth. It's, it's always been a bandwidth issue. They always like to say, I don't have the bandwidth for this. And that is obviously because there's, it's too dangerous for me. I don't want to have anything associated with career risk right now. Now that that career risk is dissipating, now that they see other institutional investors kind of programmatically getting into this, now that they see the institutionalization and the platforms available to do this, that bandwidth issue is kind of dissipating as well too. And so it's all kind
0: of very lockstep. I think David nailed it. The only thing I can add is um, the, the interest that I saw um, was really tied to the money printer Gober and Paul Tudor Jones, and I didn't see a pickup with the price rising. Um, so I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to just repeat David's uh, well-articulated point about the career risk thing. Um, I, David, I had a somewhat similar background. After SIG, I was uh, at an endowment where, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, your number one priority is basically avoiding career risk um, and, and kind of being responsible and prudent and think um, what I can add to that. Uh, one thing I'll add is um, that one interest has always been stymied by infrastructure. And uh, whenever I talk with a lot with crypto insiders, with kind of like developers, they're always skeptical about this because to them it's not that hard. Like, or some of them remember a time when running a Bitcoin node meant a command line, you know, and um, like that was the only way you could use Bitcoin, right? People from 2010, 2011, and they're like, what are you talking about? Now your grandmother can use it. And your grandmother might be able to use it because your grandmother is okay using an iPhone app or a desktop wallet, but an institution is not. When you think about the challenges that um, a family office faces or just any institutional investor one, it can't be any one individual who can control the keys. They have to have they have to have a um, administrative kind of control hierarchy, where usually it's like at an endowment, it's not like the CIO can just choose to move two billion dollars. It right that goes through a whole series of checks and and you know approvals. Um, we're, we still have a lot of work to do in the industry on security. Um, you know, we talk about like composability and DeFi, but even something, we we still, we're now making inroads into prime brokerage, which I think is hugely important, but right, think about a family office or pension or hedge fund that, you know, has State Street and Goldman as prime brokers. Um, they can't yet do lending. They can't do borrowing, uh, not in the way they're used to with a prime broker with counterparty risk. Um, a lot of them can't onboard to the exchanges that have the most liquidity. They can't get on BitMEX or Binance, uh, both because those exchanges won't allow them, and because they don't trust those exchanges. So, what we've seen recently was CME future volume really picking up, and that's actually, I think, very significant, because you know back uh, CME futures launched, um, what was it, early 2018, uh, or, or I actually remember CBOT was late 2017. I, I forget exactly when CME did theirs, but um, but there was so little volume that a hedge fund that wanted to buy 100 million dollars worth couldn't. They would have been the entire market they would have been uh pushing they would have been creating an arbitrage that was massive so the liquidity on regulated instruments like the cme where um, you don't have any custodial risk you're not having to deal with storage or administrative rights um is actually really important and still a major impediment even things like accounting software and auditing software are still kind of uh or actually i'll give a concrete example um with most assets if you if you're a trading firm or a hedge fund you can very easily delegate certain authority to a trader you can say you have the ability like when i was at sig i could trade 100 million dollars worth of of crude oil futures i couldn't walk away with barrels of crude i couldn't withdraw assets from the company um we didn't really have software that allowed that in crypto until now there's a couple fairly new products on the market that let a, a crypto hedge fund have cut those controls in place over a bunch of traders where the traders can't just walk away with the crypto. So um, we still have a ways to go on infrastructure, but um, we've made huge progress. The theme future volume picking up is massive. Players like Fidelity getting into the custody game is massive. Um, So, you know, now the more ambitious, those with a little more bandwidth who are willing to put in a bit more time to diligence, now they can get in.
1: Speaking of players getting in, what did you guys make of the Goldman Sachs? Peace. Everyone was kind of high off of uh, Paul Tudor Jones. And that was announced a couple days early that they were going to do that presentation. And I remember a lot of tweets being like, here it is. Number two Goldman coming in. And obviously it was the uh, kind of the opposite of that. But uh, what do you make of
3: that? Spencer, you want to take a stab? Sure.
4: Um, I mean, I I don't make a whole lot of it. You know, I mean, there's uh, I, I think that there are a lot of different takes that you could have on the space. I do not agree with theirs. Um, I could say that it's lazy and misinformed, but you know, that might just be derogatory tax. at someone that takes another view. Um, so you know what, like uh, overall, I'm, I'm always glad that there's at least somewhat of a balanced discussion, even if I think that sometimes the other side is a little bit misinformed in this case. Um, you know, honestly, I didn't spend too much time on it. I think there are a, a lot of positive resources on there. Certainly people will cite the Goldman research. Um, but I, you know, Goldman changes their views frequently and be surprised to see them play both sides of the table on this one i
3: I, i'm I, i i was quite disappointed to say the least um a lot of that research and a lot of those themes were and you know nathaniel you talk about themes all the time a lot of those themes were from 2016 and 17 um that was what was disappointing to me They effectively seem to have missed the last two plus years of institutional build out that I had just alluded to. And the work didn't seem to really be there. And so, you know, if you're going to make claims that there are issues within digital assets, especially Bitcoin, there are things, there are structural issues for sure. There are platforms out there that offer massive amounts of leverage that cause disruptions all the time. There are cascading liquidations that happen during March. There are, you know, obviously conversations about needing to have fail-safes and having to have, you know, switches on, very similar to what we have on the NYSE. There are structural issues in the capital markets that you can obviously make and opine on that are more relative today than they are, you know, versus, say, 2016 and 17. And to, I think one of the things that was really disturbing to me and that was really upsetting to me is the inference that Bitcoin is used from ransomware Ransomware that is also targeting people that are on the front lines that are trying to facilitate with the recovery of COVID. That was very disturbing to me, and I don't think that was appropriate. And it just showed to me that they were having a very negative bias towards it versus having more of an objective uh, bias on uh, a more of an objective conversation about it. And again, redacting back to the Paul Tudor Jones letter, that call was spurred on specifically by Paul Tudor Jones's letter and his entry into the space. And so they had a few weeks of runway to really kind of figure things out. And it really was
4: disappointing to see that they did not. Keep, keep in mind that like the default, oh sorry, the, the default let's keep in mind is that there's poorly informed criticism of our industry, right? Like that, that's been the default for a long time now. So it's more notable when someone comes up and actually has either one, a really well-founded kind of support of it like Paul Tudor Jones does, or a really well-founded criticism is welcomed as well. But, you know, overall, when it's like, hey, another bank, one unit within another large bank publishes, like, poorly researched information on crypto, it, you know, I mean, ultim- the, the good thing here is that crypto is not really susceptible to this kind of, like, poor information, right? I mean, crypto grew out of literally six years of this. Um, and, and continues to do so, and continues to gain more attention. So I, I'm not particularly concerned. Yeah, about, the, the smartest about the money
0: macro guys um, are are have all been in personally for a few years, and um, I suspect a lot more will will announce in the next quarterly letters that they're in Bitcoin. Um, a lot of I haven't been privy to the calls, but um, there've been kind of groups of calls of people like Paul Tudor Jones, like the very very lead billionaire macro managers who've been talking about this for over a year. And they, they'll have like quarterly calls where they discuss strategy. Um, those guys are always long ahead of the private client uh, advising. Um, it's a little disappointing in the short term in that uh, if Goldman came out and told other clients about Bitcoin, that would certainly be you know bullish short term, but I don't view it as existentially worrying. They, those, you, there's just a pattern to adoption, right? It's like, you, it, it, it's not surprising to me that um, People over 60 generally get into crypto later than people who are under 30. You know, that's just kind of the, the, the pattern of any new tech, any new industry. Um, private client advising is a lot like like endowment in the sense that it's much more about uh, protecting your downside. Whereas the guys like Paul Tudor Jones are collecting carry on upside. They're paid to take risks, private client advisors are not. They're paid to avoid, basically, uh, to risk minimize.
1: So let's let's shift gears to going back, I guess to to even more kind of macro questions. after uh, a year or a half a year now of the unexpected becoming normalized uh, very quickly, what are you know h- how are you making sense of these markets of everything happening? I mean, are you guys just sitting and kind of waiting to get more information? Are you acting? Are you allocating? I mean, how do you think about just operating as investors in a time like this?
0: I, I love crazy periods, um, th- love them because during normal times, uh, investing just in general, I'm not even talking about crypto, but certainly it applies to crypto too. It's very competitive. You have a lot of people, you know, taking time to gather data, poring over it, analyzing it carefully, fighting over, you know, ba- in traditional markets, basis points and crypto, a few percentage points. When things go crazy, um, I think it's, it's just way, from my perspective, at least, it's way easier to outperform. And by outperform, I don't mean that in a, Uh, direct quantitative sense. I mean it generally in that, like, you know, you look at traditional markets. um, In 2007, discretionary traders like when I was a Susquehanna were getting eliminated by algorithms. Um, Not all of them, but basically if you were in a liquid market, you were getting replaced by machine learning algos. When you have a regime shift, when you have the the nature of the game changes, um, that freaks a lot of people out. Humans tend to break down and the algos break down because they're trying to trade based on a one-year, three-year, five-year data set, right? Like it, as an individual, you were able to beat Wall Street in 2008 through for a few years because all of Wall Street was anchoring to 30 years of real estate data. If you just applied a little bit of common sense and said, this actually is different. Like, I can't, you know, like, yeah, those quants, they might have PhDs. They might have teams of 100 quants pouring over 30 years of data to eight decimal points. All of that's worthless when you have something that hasn't happened in 30 years. So um, like Black Thursday, uh, those times are incredibly exciting to me because you, you get to it's less about um, extreme attention to detail and number crunching and do you have every last bit of data. And it's more about applying, uh, it's more about being cool, calm and collective and applying common sense. And it, it's great because you have, you have this little window where you can so clearly be greedy when others are fearful and vice versa. Like normally that takes a decade to play out, you know, um, and it's often very tough. Like I mean, I'd say that with equities right now, um, you know, are people greedy or are they fearful? It's not super obvious to me. It's a mix. I'm personally bearish on equities over a five-year time frame, but uh, it's hard to – it's not like I can say that everyone in the world is super bullish equities or or vice versa. Whereas Black Thursday, basically no one – there were obviously people buying that night, but for very clear reasons, people were freaking out. Right. Um, Not just because they were fearful of the price, but because markets were breaking, because exchanges were breaking, um, because you would worry, you know, if you OTC desks that had loans out didn't know if they were going to exist the next morning, they were still going to be solvent. So it's not that people suddenly became idiots. It's that these structural forces um, that are invisible to a lot of retail traders. If you're an individual trading Bitcoin, um, you don't necessarily even see this stuff happening. As one other example, um, I was a treasury bond trader for a while, and uh, treasury bonds are rehypothecated. So a prime broker will lend it out, and the same bond gets lent out and re-lent out and re-lent out a dozen times to the point that no one knows who actually has the bond. Um, And every few months – this has gotten less and less frequent – but every few months, you'll have um, what's called a failure to deliver, where someone is owed a bond, and another prime broker can't give it to them because there was a usually a minor administrative error somewhere down the line. And suddenly you have this whole cascading weird thing happen in the market where I might have short-sell a bond that I need to cover, but I can't get delivery on it to actually meet my contractual commitment. And the way Wall Street deals with that is handshake agreements. Um, theoretically that could end up in every Wall Street bank suing one another. It doesn't, basically they just say, we'll just kind of shrug it off and, and you know, basically deal with a few basis points of lending loss. But the point is, that's kind of invisible to everyone else. But if you're a trader, if you're a treasury bond trader, your world is ending when that happens, because you don't know if you're going to be able to meet your contractual, uh, you know, uh, uh, commitment to deliver a bond. Um, so to me, those are really exciting times to be investor and trader. And it's actually for general retail traders in traditional markets and crypto, that's kind of the only time that I would suggest aggressively betting against the professionals because the professionals are handcuffed by their normal business so like right if you have otc desks that normally have 10 times the information most of us can have 10 times the liquidity they have the cheapest cost of leverage they have the best access to counterparties they have every advantage um they're gonna beat you in trading um but their day-to-day business requires that they take certain types of risk counterparty risk if they're doing arbitrages they have positions on on exchanges like bitmex and counter positions on coinbase and and on those nights when the market blows up those otc desks are forced to do the exact opposite of what they want to do they don't have a choice because they're already overexposed and if you have fresh money if you have fresh capital if you're a retail trader who doesn't have a bunch of giant arbitrage trades on you can go onto coinbase and buy bitcoin at 4000 and so you, you get this incredible edge. And the same was true in real estate and, and Wall Street generally in 2008. Same was true, um, you know, crude oil just traded at negative $37. Um, that actually wasn't easy to exploit as a retail trader. But just it's an example where every date, every Wall Street crude oil trader, not all of them, but plenty of them who were forced to trade crude oil every day. They were buying it $2 at $1 at $0 and they're getting margin called and liquidated negative at 10. Um, that was actually pretty hard to exploit as a retail trader because the contract was expiring. You couldn't have just bought crude oil at negative 10. But the point is um, you actually have kind of the luxury of not having to make a market every... Like if you're an options market maker like I used to be, you're legally obligated to constantly make markets. And so what happens is if the market is moving in one direction, you end up with a long position whether you want to or not. Whereas someone with dry powder who, doesn't, who isn't trading options every day, they get to step in and do a great trade when you're handcuffed by your day-to-day business.
3: I just want to dip in. I know we're getting close to, I think we're close to 540. Um, Tell me if that's right, Nathaniel, is that right?
1: I think I think that's, Ben will tell us, I'm sure, in the chat if we we screw it up.
3: I I think in terms of ideation, in terms of being able to find pockets, you know, right now, as we alluded to at the top of the hour, we're dealing with a a situation in society that has not really presented itself. Not only do we have massive social unrest that harps back to uh, 1968 but we also have been dealing with a global pandemic where we are questioning everything around us we're questioning if physical you know fiat is dangerous to hold in our pockets because it might carry a virus all those sorts of things are happening you know in real time and very very fast and i think one of my favorite quotes from howard marks and we talk about howard marks a lot at our firm you know to in order to achieve superior results an investor must be able with some regularity to find asymmetries instances where the upside potential exceeds the downside risk that's what successful investing is all about and that really just rings true with us we're you know the ability to find those types of opportunities now amidst a global pandemic and massive social unrest are presenting themselves uh, because people more people in in the public and the population out there are questioning the social paradigms that we've been dealing with for hundreds of years
4: um you know the only thing is you know about investing in in these kind of climates you know for us it, it we operate venture funds and venture funds only. So we're not, we're not trading. Um, you know, we're not moving positions in these, you know, when we do see black Thursday, like events, you know, it does give us an opportunity to, to deploy capital. Um, you know, it's always scary times. So it's always kind of, you know, watching and see what happens, but, um, you know, always the idea is that we can call capital counter cyclically. Right. So, um, you know, when, when we see big market events, normally what happens is your investors are trying to pull capital from your fund. That means that you're a forced seller at the bottom like right when prices are discounted, right when you wanna step in and buy, everyone yanks their capital, really, really painful. And the opposite is true as well, that like markets have exploded, we're in late 2017, they're saying here, take more capital, right as you're kind of saying, things are looking a little bit expensive right now, right? Like I'm a little bit nervous. Um, And so, you know, uh, given the liquidity profile, you know, venture funds tend to be very difficult to raise, right? We're asking our our investors to lock up their capital for eight to 10 years. That is a very long commitment for them. Um, But what it does allow us to do is stand there and invest kind of counter-cyclically relative to the market. Um, And so, you know, for us, it's business as usual. We're making a lot of equity investments. I have a term sheet going out later tonight. Um, And otherwise, you know, keeping an eye on on several liquid assets as well. Well,
1: it's been great talking to you guys. Uh, A friend of mine, Emerson Spartz, I think some of you might know, we had this conversation recently about punctuated equilibrium or moments of punctuated equilibrium. These are moments where things that have been bubbling for a while all of a sudden have this massive push forward. And this is, it turns out how evolution works. It's not one straight line. It's uh, very long periods of calm followed by kind of explosive Cambrian explosion type moments. And I think we're living through. And his assertion is that in those types of moments, it's the only time when you can beat the smartest guys in the room because there are no smartest guys in the room. So uh, I appreciate some of the smartest guys that I know being in this room for now. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you and excited to see the rest of this event.